All right, church. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews 13 today. Last week, we began this, this last chapter of, of Hebrews, and uh, if you were here, you might know that we have begun to look at some of the essential ethics of practical Christian living. This is where he gets down to the nitty-gritty uh, nitty of how to live as believers. Uh, ethic is a moral code. It has to do with our standards of conduct, doesn't it? And um, a born-again believer must operate by some sort of uh, code, some standard of of, of uh, ethics, and our ethical standard comes from God's Word. That's where it comes from. It's not subjective. It's not based on whatever we feel or desire. Um, it, it originates from doctrinal truth, and we have moved in our study from a vertical view, our relationship with God and how we're to love Him, into this horizontal view. How are we now to take that information, that knowledge of and love and relationship with God, and how are we to use that in relationship to one another. And, and last week, we began looking at the first three verses, um, how that is in relation to others. We looked at practical expressions of love. How do we love one another? And if you were here, you might remember we saw this um, idea of brotherly love, that we're to have a, a continuing love for one another in the body of Christ. That's a love that's already been poured out into our hearts by God. We're to have a congenial love for strangers within the body, but also without. And we're to have a compassionate love for those that are, that are hurting. It's meeting the needs uh, of the body and, and, and outside the body. And really, if you think about it, it's living out our church motto, isn't it? That's what it is. It's loving God supremely and loving people sacrificially. But there are also essential ethics of Christian living that inform us on Christian behavior in relation to ourselves. We, we, we see how to love one another, but here now the, the author wants to direct our attention to how do we conduct ourselves in certain areas of life. And you think about all the areas of life that the author could pick. He only picks two, and they are sex and money. Those are the two areas that he addresses today, and I think the reason is probably obvious to you. If it's not, it should be. These are perhaps uh, the two areas of life that do impact every single one of us uh, or will at a certain age, but also that the two areas that I think have the greatest power to captivate our hearts and demand our worship. Just look at our world today. They're tied into uh, the pursuit of pleasure. We're a pleasure-seeking world. We're obsessed with pleasure. And one of the common um, sort of, I guess, condemnations of Christianity and against God accusations, I could say, is that God is a killjoy, that he doesn't desire pleasure for you, but nothing could be further from the truth. God has made so much for our pleasure. I was listening to Paul David Tripp, the same uh, man we were looking at last night in the marriage conference, talking about the pleasure of things like food, steak, bread, chocolate, and he said, God had your pleasure in mind when he made those things. He says, so you can go and eat an ice cream cone and then stand up and sing the doxology because it's good. It's for your pleasure. But so much of our pleasure seeking ends up being unbiblical. We, 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 we search for pleasure in the wrong places, in the wrong ways, and at the wrong times, and perhaps one of the chief areas where we pervert pleasure 
is in these two areas. It's sex and money. You think about our sex-crazed culture today and all the, the industries that it drives, the entertainment industry, the advertising industry. We are bombarded by sex every single day in our ads, in our movies, in our television, in our music, in theater, you name it, sex is in it. Many years ago now, I took my young son, Ethan, to a basketball game of the Los Angeles Lakers when we were living in California. And I was me and my son and then my pastor and his son. And then we went with one other uh, married man with children, but he didn't bring them. He was on his own. And at the intermission, the halftime, the Laker girls come out to dance. And the outfits that they're wearing and the, the, um, the dance that they did was, was obvious. The purpose of it was to arouse. It was to entice. Um, it was erotic. And so immediately wanted to protect my son and myself. I turned to my pastor. He did the same with his son's head. And we just, we tried to engage in conversation and not even look at that. While this man in between who we knew and loved was absolutely fixated on it. He, he couldn't engage us. He was just engaging what was attempting to engage him. And in the most innocent of situations, just wanting to enjoy a basketball game, sex was there. That's sex. It's absolutely everywhere. You think about money. I'm sure I don't have to talk to you about money as well. In our Western culture, those who are obsessed with making money, amassing possessions, um, well, it's like it's like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the more they have, the more that they want, the more they have, the more they need, and the more that they have, the more they worry about what they have. That's what he says. And those that don't have it, then they worry all their life whether they'll ever have enough. And possessions themselves aren't a problem. The problem is that often possessions possess us. We don't possess them. So it's important, really, to understand how Christians are to conduct themselves in relation to these areas, sex and money. They're huge. So what does the Bible have to say about these things? A lot. Here in our passage today, the author shows us the Christian conduct relating to sex and money. And when I sent out my email, I fully intended to address both of these situations. <laughs> but as I amassed my material, I realized very quickly I had far too much material to address both of these things today. So this is part one, and we're just looking at the issue of, of sex. Now, as we look at this passage, we're just going to look at verse four. I want you to see that sex is immediately clear that this is the subject here. Look at verse four of chapter 13. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's the only passage we're going to look at today. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we look at this and dissect this. God, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that you speak into areas, every area of life. We're thankful that we can, as a church body, even talk about things like the proper place for sex and the purpose of it. So we pray that you would bless it, Lord, that you would open up hearts, Lord, that you'd protect the hearts that need protecting, that you'd grant them, Lord, the wisdom to be able to to take away something from what we talk about today because, Lord, our world is just saturated by sex. And I think of our young people in particular who so need guidance in this area. And so I pray for them in particular today as well. 
would you just bless this time in your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in every single biblical discussion on sex, we must begin in one place, always. We must begin with marriage. Marriage is the one and only provision by God for sex. Just going to say it that frankly. It's the one and only place for sex. You think about sex in our world today, and it's prolific. I said that already. It's absolutely everywhere and in everything. And even the youngest of our children in schools today, we're trying to sexualize them. We're trying to teach them about sex, but even improper use of sex. And so it's so important that we as believers understand these things. What does God say about it? If there's only one place and one provision for sex, that that's marriage, then marriage is pretty important. In fact, I would say it this way, marriage is precious. Marriage is precious. In our passage, we read marriage is honorable among all. And that word honorable, timios, does mean held in honor. It does mean esteemed, but it also means precious. And of the 14 times it's used in the New Testament, 11 times you find precious. We're saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Marriage is precious. It's a beautiful thing. It's a unique relationship. It's unlike any relationship on earth. But it is not held in high regard today. Marriage is simply living together until you get tired of one another. Well, if that's all it is, then a lot of us could have called it quits a long time ago. Or it's simply dating with communal perks. People jump in and out of marriages so much it's like they're trying on shoes. I think Jesus gives us perhaps the best description of marriage, and it's in Matthew 19. If you could turn there with me, I'd like you to see this in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. He is questioned about specifically divorce, which then means marriage. He's asked about this in verse 3, Matthew 19. And in verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we learn several things about marriage that make this a unique relationship. The first is this. Marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. <laughs> now, that's really weird for me to tell you today. That's, that's a unique thing. It's meant to be between a man and a woman. Jesus says, haven't you read? I love that. Isn't it clear? Didn't you, didn't you read back in the beginning that he made them male and female? Why are you asking me? Haven't you read that? And so I can stand before you today and confidently tell you that there are only two genders. They are male and female. Haven't you read? <laughs> there it is. We cannot change our gender and we cannot try and to create new ones. We cannot do that. And any attempt 
to do so is in a direct attempt, uh, assault on marriage. It is. God established it. So marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. We also find that marriage is meant to be monogamous. The two shall become one flesh, he says. So then they are no longer two, but one. You know, there's no other relationship on earth like that, that has this special oneness. You don't have that with your mom or your dad. You don't have that with your brother, your sister, or even your best friend. You can be close, for sure, but you cannot be one flesh. One flesh creates this oneness that is meant to be for two people to become one and remain so, two to one, a monogamous relationship, not three, not four, not multiple, to become one. It's meant to be that way. It's also meant to be unbroken. Marriage is meant to be unbroken. It's meant to be permanent. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You wouldn't see that in the world today, that that's a meaning behind marriage, but that is what was intended, that two would become one and they would remain one forever. And as we begin this and we look at this, I do want to start by saying there is no condemnation to people here today. I know that there are people who have had a divorce. I know that there are people who have maybe even committed adultery as we come to these things and yet have found forgiveness. We don't here seek to condemn you if you have a new life in Christ on these things. My, my purpose today is to point what was God's intention. God intended that's what he wanted, for this to be a permanent relationship. But something can and often does break the marriage bond. What is that three-letter word called? Sin. It is sin. Sin breaks the marriage bond. Obviously, the obvious one is through death. Death entered the world through sin. So when, when death occurs, the Bible is very clear about that. When death occurs, the remaining member is actually freed from that marriage bond. They're actually free to remarry if they so choose. Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 5, they all say the same thing. But sin can also come about by two people living together who are unequally yoked, a believer and a non-believer. And the Bible says if the non-believer leaves... Just, just leaves the relationship. There's nothing that believer can really do to salvage it. They're free to remarry. That bond has been broken. And the only other area um, that really allows for remarriage there where sin comes in is sexual immorality. That's what he's dealing with today. When sexual immorality comes into a marriage relationship, it causes such havoc. It wreaks such destruction in this oneness and in this unique covenant that Jesus says that can break the bond and the person is free to remarry. So marriage is a precious thing. God established it. He designed it to be a unique thing. But even with all of that, even solid Christian thinkers going way back in history, they've challenged the importance of marriage. You look back to those monastic periods, people just wanting to go and become monks and, and live away because, because it was looked at, marriage was looked at as sort of for the weaker people origin of the third century, castrated himself in order to more devoutly serve God. He thought, I can serve him better if I do this. Now, Paul does speak about this. It is true. He does say in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 9, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, which is 
single. He says it's good for them to do that. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And many people have read that and, and looking at that, seeking to be more devoted to God, felt that, that those that got married, they were simply people who, who could not control themselves. They demonstrated a lack of self-control because Paul said, hey, it's better if, if you're single. Well, actually, Paul doesn't say that. His, he's clear. Singleness is a, is a good thing, but marriage is preferred. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, he says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. It's preferred. Sexual immorality has always been a problem. Always. He says, because, I mean, think about that Paul's time with Rome and what was going on there. He says, because that is so prevalent, it's actually better if you marry and I can say that's the same today. It's actually better if you're married because of the danger of sexual immorality. Yet our world looks at these things and says, ah, it's no big deal. Paul prefers that people marry because of that danger, and it's so great. Marriage is a unique thing. It's a precious thing. It's a place of protection. In fact, people have gone so far to say that you shouldn't even get married to forbid marriage altogether. It's a broken institution. We need to come up with something new. Well, I think God knew what he was doing when he created it. And people who do come up with that, I want to point out in 1 Timothy 4, it's a sign of the latter times. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. These are people who depart from the faith, who are listening to doctrines of demons, who say, don't get married. No, we should be encouraging marriage. It's a precious thing. God established it. We can keep marriage as a precious thing when we respect God's design, can't we? It's between a man and a woman. It's meant to be monogamous. It's meant to be permanent. We also keep it precious by obeying God's order. God has an order and a design in marriage. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The wife is to submit herself to the husband as unto the Lord, but also they are to mutually submit to one another in love and in respect that is centered on the welfare and happiness of the other. That is a beautiful and precious thing. So marriage is precious. I want to begin there. He says it's honorable. But because marriage is precious, then hear this, then sex in marriage is pure. Point two, sex in marriage is pure. Going back to our passage in Hebrews, just look at what he says there. Speaking about marriage, the author goes on to say, and the bed undefiled. The marriage bed, as it is referred to, is a euphemism for sex. That's what it is. And sex in the context of marriage here is undefiled. It is pure. It's beautiful. To be more specific, even, sex in marriage between a man and a woman, even if they're not believers, because it's in the context of marriage, it's pure. You could say that Sex is sanctified sex in marriage. 
And Scripture, if you think about the reasons that Scripture gives for marriage and you look at all of them, you can see what a big part that sex plays in it. I'm going to give you five P words here to help you, but the first is partnership. We know that marriage is about a partnership. God saw man and it wasn't good for him to be alone. And so he made him a suitable helper in woman. And he made the woman and that suitable helper is meant to be a companion, a partner. Friendship was always a key ingredient and should always be a key ingredient between a husband and a wife, Genesis 2. We see in the New Testament that, that marriage is a picture. It is a, it is a picture of the church. It's a mystery hidden in the past. You don't see this in the Old Testament, but in the New, Paul says it's a picture of the church because husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So it's a partnership and it's a picture. But the rest of these I'm going to give you, they're all relating to sex. Procreation. Because back in Genesis, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill this earth. It is also for pleasure. You reading through your Bibles in a year, you do that process of just going through, you're going to come across pleasure passages. They're there. Proverbs 5, the Song of Solomon. Those are um, passages that major on the physical pleasure of marriage, intimacy in marriage. And most importantly, it's for purity. Why? As Paul said, it protects from sexual immorality. It protects from sexual immorality. It's meant to keep sex pure. Remember, the marriage bed is undefiled. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, he says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. So those are uh, some reasons that Scripture gives us for marriage. Now, let's revisit the one flesh statement of Jesus when he said, haven't you heard? When he said that, he was quoting from Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. What were they when they became one flesh? They were naked. The unashamed nakedness of the marriage relationship provides a picture for us. It's meant to provide a wonderful picture of the unique intimacy that exists in all areas of marriage. They were open. They were unashamed. They were naked. It's a beautiful thing. You think back to your wedding night. When a couple enter into marriage, a marriage covenant, I've done many weddings, what is, the, what is the moment where that marriage is made complete? Is it when the vows are exchanged? Is it when the rings are exchanged? Is it when the minister finally stands up, I pronounce you husband and wife? Do any of my words, do any of those things carry any power? Does that make a marriage complete? Uh, no, a marriage covenant between a husband and wife is complete, or the word is consummated through sexual union, the act of one flesh. We're not fully married until we become one flesh. Now, that has long been understood. The, the ceremony, the, the tradition of a marriage night has gone back centuries. That's the idea behind that. It's not just the eagerness of the couple to, to come together in, 
and intimacy and anticipation of that, but it's also to complete the marriage. We're married. We're actually married. We can do that. It's meant to be a unique thing, but today people are in and out of the sack long before marriage. There's nothing that makes marriage unique. Anyone can get up and say, you're married. Who gives a rip what I say? That doesn't make a marriage. That moment is a beautiful thing. And God looks upon it and says, I pronounce you husband and wife because you have entered into now something sacred. You two are truly now one flesh. You see? It's a beautiful thing. It's pure. Once married, the sexual union throughout marriage doesn't, doesn't make you married over and over again, but it expresses it. It does. It encourages it. It strengthens it. I've mentioned before about the hormones even that are secreted by the, the brain during sex. Oxytocin is what it's called. And it's, it's um, in, in, the, in the brains. Women have more receptors, but it's in both. It's called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. And, and sexual activity releases oxytocin into the brain, and it creates emotional sort of bonds between the parents, uh, between the partners. It's meant to strengthen that relationship. Synapses between the neurons where these hormones flow They send these impulses that either strengthen the marriage or break it down or weaken it over time. How does it weaken or breaking? You break these bonds by the detaching of relationships. You can cause depression. You make it harder to bond with someone else in the future because in our world today, we we hook up and attach and then we detach. We hook up and attach and detach and that multiple attaching and detaching actually weakens the bond. It sets you up. Later on, studies have shown that because of sexual promiscuity, the bond between two people that should be strengthening over time actually weakens over time. You're less likely to remain with a partner. And that's why sex between a married man and a married woman is a very good thing. It strengthens the bond. When we engage in sexual activity, God has actually hardwired our bodies to bond together, to become one flesh. It's amazing. That's what God's design was. We literally become one flesh. There's a beautiful passage that I think offers us a wonderful definition of sexual union. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 16 to 17. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined is to the Lord in one, uh, sorry, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the two become one flesh, and then he he goes and talks about the Lord. We're joined to the Lord, and we're one spirit with him. What is he saying here? I found a great quote by John Henderson. He's a biblical counselor. And he took that verse and said, this is a great definition. This is sexual union provides a wonderfully visible, temporal, one flesh picture of the invisible, eternal, one spirit reality of Christ and his church. Incredible. There is this beautiful uh, picture. It's visible. It's a one flesh picture, but we're one spirit with the Lord. It gives us a picture of our eternity with him. That's a reality. And so sex and marriage, it's, it's pure. That's where it's meant to be. But conversely, then, any sex outside of marriage is defiling. It's impure. It's against God's design. I'm going to say it this way, sex outside of marriage is perverse, which is point three. Perverse sex is sex that's contrary to God's original design. That's what it is. And the author goes on to give us examples of perverse sex. He says, but fornicators and adulterers 
God will judge. Now, the word here used is fornicator. It is pornos. Can you guess what word we have today that comes from that? It's pornography. It's the same basic Greek term that's often translated immorality. I'll give you a, a verse there. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And that word is pornia. So we have pornos and pornia. So it's the same sexual sin, immorality is sexual morality, that's mentioned in our passage today as fornicators. Sexual immorality or fornication is any sexual activity outside the bond of marriage between a man and a woman and even other things because it includes premarital sex and homosexuality, lesbianism and adultery and pornography and various things. And I just want to look at a couple of areas that I think are running rampant in our world today, in our young people, and make no mistake, it's in the church too. The first is premarital sex. That's sexual activity outside of marriage, primarily before marriage. It's a common thing. People just shack up together, they live together, they, they live in a sexual relationship together, maybe in the hopes and uh, the promises of, of being married, but not actually getting married, or until a later time. Movies and television shows communicate that this activity is natural, that it's, that it's normal. I knew Christian parents at our last church who encouraged their daughters to experiment with sex. I had conversations with them about it. And they said, it's just going to prepare them better for marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. Both daughters have had multiple partners and failed marriages. I think the reason that premarital sex is seen as a natural activity is because it's considered to be a normal bodily function like eating and drinking. That's how it's um, looked at today. There was one publisher of a pornographic magazine. He said this, sex is a function of the body, a drive which man shares with animals, like eating and drinking and sleeping. It's a physical demand that must be satisfied. If you don't satisfy it, you'll have all sorts of neuroses and repressive psychoses. <laughs> Sex is here to stay. Let's forget the prudery that makes us hide from it. Throw away those inhibitions. Find a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. Now, of course, a, a porn publisher is going to say that because you're making them rich. <laughs> but even most people in Western society today would agree with this definition. They would say, but it's natural. It's just natural. And they say that to get the approval of men to pursue their own sinful pleasures. That's Romans 1. We say it's natural. If I can get the world to agree with me that it's natural, then it's no longer sin, do you see? Romans 1, 26 to 27, he's speaking about a particular sin, and we see this played out today with the LGBTQ and all that. But this is what he addresses. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Obviously, those things, they exchanged what was natural for not natural, is what he says. And it's just as unnatural to have sex outside of marriage. God never intended it. This uh, natural excuse has been happening 
in the church. It's the same excuse the Corinthians used to justify their immorality as well. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, they said this, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We had a purity conference back in the States many years ago. We did it in, a, in an outreach community. There were many young uh, uh, girls, lots of them African-Americans, to be honest, who never heard these things before. And they came and they heard a purity seminar, and then we had a Q&A. And one of them honestly said, okay, why can't I do what I want to do with my body? It's my body. Why can't I do what I want to do with my body? That's the question today. It's my body. I'll do what I want to do. No one can tell me what to do with my body, not even God. The first place we went was this first. That's, you know, that's, a, that's a, a common question. Let me take you to a passage. 1 Corinthians 6.13, we looked at this. The body is not for sexual immorality. It's not. It's for who? It's the Lord. So it isn't your body. That's what our, It's not your body. The world's telling you it's your body, and you can do what you want. But God tells you it's actually His And if you would give your body to him, he would do so much more for you, so much better for you. Their excuse here is very obvious. Food for the stomach and stomach for the foods. Food is made to satisfy the cravings of the stomach. The stomach is made to crave food. So the Greek text literally says the foods, the belly, the belly, the foods. They're just saying that's biology. And that's what they thought about sex as well in in Corinth. The body was created with a natural desire for sex. So when they desire it, why shouldn't they just satisfy it? It's food for the stomach, stomach for the foods. And Paul's, his rebuttal is this, but God will destroy both it and them. Did you see that? What's Paul's point there? Yeah, it's true the stomach was made for food. It's true that the food was made for the stomach, but that relationship is temporal. That's just here. It's going to be destroyed. That's a biological process that's not going to be needed in the eternal state. You, you indulge in sexual sin. If you do that, you buy into the lie that our bodies are, are temporal, that we're just here to live it up. There's nothing beyond this. Just you might as well live it up. After all, it's your body. It's your life. Is that true? No. It's a distortion of the truth. The Bible says the body's not for sexual immorality. It's for the Lord. It's his possession. We can't use it for things like sexual immorality. It perverts God's design for sex. I think the problem with premarital sex and couples living together before marriage is that they they want all the benefits of of marriage without the commitment, without the responsibilities that come to husbands and to wives in marriage. In marriage, the two become one flesh. And so you have a responsibility to care for the needs of the other. It's as if you're caring for yourself. We have sexual responsibilities to fulfill in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4 says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You have these responsibilities in marriage, but you have no such responsibility outside of marriage. You could just, you just get what you want and get out. It's all about you. There's no accountability. Of course, it looks like a great thing. Within marriage, there's, there's responsibilities, and they don't exist outside of, of marriage. There's a book I read, The Family Life of a Christian Leader. 
There's a whole chapter on sexual love. And Ajith Fernando, he says this, committed relationships are maintained through hard work. Love without responsibility is easy at first because it has built an unreal world to define it. That is so true. It's an imaginary world. It's the world where pornography and casual sex and affairs abide. It's this fun, fun play world that I've made up and there's no responsibility at all. And that's why it's so attractive. It just looks so fun. And I want to speak particularly to our young people that chose to stay in the room today. Our unmarried people, very young and even at the marrying age. For most of you, maybe temptation to experiment with these things seems far away. Maybe it seems unrealistic. For some of you, it may be a great struggle even right now. And I just want to give you some principles of Scripture to help you against the draw of the world that says, just do it, just do it. It doesn't harm anyone. And one of the ones that I've used with my family is Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Do not stir stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let me explain to you what this passage is about. This is in Song of Solomon, which is about marriage relationships. But it says, listen, but if you're not ready for that relationship, which means if you're a teenager and you're not thinking of getting married, you shouldn't be stirring up or awakening love. But our world today looks at this dating culture and we look at this, these fun movies and televisions that highlight all these things. They seem really innocent. And I'm going to sound like such a prude saying this, I know, but like kissing and, oh, my first kiss, and it was so special. Can I just tell you that we need to think about the wisdom of things like that? Do you know that actual kissing is actually meant as foreplay for marriage? It's meant to awaken and arouse love so that you can please, you can satisfy. You start at a young age toying with those things. You are awakening, arousing love, but you have no place to express it. You have no place to satisfy it before God because you're not married. Does that make sense? That's the danger here. It awakens something that's not meant to be awakened yet. Our son, Ethan, practiced this so that um, his first kiss was at his engagement with his wife. He believed this so strongly. He protected his heart from these things. I think we need to start rethinking what we're, what we're doing in the world. A lot of times, we're just following what we did or what our parents did or what the world's doing. Oh, it's just dating. I remember my parents. Oh, your first kiss. That's great. It's like, I, why did, why? <laughs> why did I ever think of these things? The pressure of the world. There is a danger of dating and premarital relationships, even though they seem innocent. These Disney movies make them seem like so much fun. But let me tell you, you're creating a pattern that is going to harm your relationships in the future. Can I take you to a passage called 1 Thessalonians, okay? If you're, if you're traveling with me, you're still, you're still plugging in. I still have your attention. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I just want to read these few passages to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. Here we learn God's will 
for us. Anyone wanting to know what God's will for is your life? Uh, will for your life is, sorry. This is it. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you, church, for you, believer, is your sanctification. And then he goes on, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's, what's, what is this about? He says you need to, to abstain from such a thing as sexual immorality. It's everywhere. And you should learn how to possess yourself, your own body, your own vessel in sanctification, in honor. You should learn how to practice self-control. You should learn how to not awaken love until it so pleases, in other words. But look at this. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one, verse 6, should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. What does the Bible mean by defraud or take advantage of? It means this. It means ripping off someone by raising expectations that you cannot deliver on. No one should do that, he says. You should focus on sanctification. But do you know that Christians all over are constantly ripping one another off? We're defrauding. We're promising something we can't deliver on. It's arousing a hunger we cannot righteously satisfy. Casual premarital sex, while it's, it's romanticized in movies and such, is actually fornication. It's sexual immorality. And the Bible here says, God will judge. Another area of fornication that I think is a huge issue is pornography. Pornography is any sort of illicit sexual material used for self-gratification. It could be written, it could be auditory, it can be visual, it could be virtual or real. It's an epidemic. I'm just going to say it that way. It's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It promotes this fantasy world of illicit uh, extramarital sex, and many men and women are addicted to it. I've been counseling men through this for, for years, as far back as I can remember in, in high school with, with um, young men. And even, this might shock you, but at the Master's University, a Christian university where my, my son went to school, they were confiscating uh, computers all the time because of the amount of pornography that was coming downloaded on those, and that was for men and women. Uh, going to a Christian university because they came to those universities already addicted, just already uh, so attracted to it, they can't kick it. And I'm sure there's people in this room struggling with it. And again, not to condemn, I want to provide you a way out because this is such a hard, hard struggle for many men in particular and even Christians. Why? I want to explain some things. I think a lot of times men have excuses. We have excuses as to why would succumb to something like pornography. Um, neediness. Uh, if it's in a marriage relationship, neglect. Oh, I've had men tell me, my wife just doesn't understand how sexual of a creature I am. I, I, I need sex. And I would say, no, you don't. Sex is not a need like eating and drinking and sleeping, like the world tries to tell you. Um, sex is a gift. And no human being needs sex so badly that they're willing to sin for it. The reason men and women look at porn is because they're arrogant. I need to say that because you have to understand the root problem. The root is self-focus. 
itself. James 3.16 says this, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Every evil thing. Pornography is an evil thing. If you look at porn, you're, you're, you're arrogant. It flows out of a heart that is self-seeking. And I, I, I wanted to read a quote from a book I've gone through um, with men in the past. It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. And don't worry, we'll put this up on the slide at the end here. Um, but he talks about, uh, about this. And I just wanted to read this. He says, men look at pornography out of an arrogant desire to see women in a way that God does not allow. They show arrogant defiance to God's commands, rejecting the, the delight of sexual intimacy and marriage and deciding for themselves what they believe is better. They show arrogant disregard for God's call to selfless marital love. They show arrogant derision for the female actresses whom they should be seeking to respect as women who need to hear the good news of Jesus. They show arrogant disdain for their own children by hiding their sin and inviting the enemy into their home and their marriage. They show arrogant disrespect toward all those who would be scandalized if their sin were known. The root problem with men who look at porn is not neediness, it's arrogance. And that is so true. Pornography is so dangerous today because it's so easy to access, it's so easy to hide, and it's so easy to convince yourself you're not harming anyone. Whether you're married or you're not, can I tell you, you are harming someone. You're harming, first of all, yourself. And we already looked at this verse, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, to flee sexual immorality, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality, especially that of pornography, has the ability to fasten itself upon our hearts. It attaches there. Job understood this. He knew this danger. Um, and, and so he wanted to protect his eyes. In Job 31.1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman. He understood enough about himself to understand that he shouldn't allow his eyes to fixate upon something. Our eyes are the window to the soul. What we see can stay in our minds, let me tell you, for a very, very, very long time. Images are burned into these amazing computers God has given us in these brains. They retain images for years and years and years, and you can take those images right into your marriages. And once our eyes see perverse things, those Images are in our minds. Our eyes see them and burn them into our minds. And once there, then they can easily attach themselves to our heart. Listen to what Job goes on to say. If my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes, you see that? Or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let, me, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her for that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. Make no mistake, you are harming someone when you look at pornography. You're harming yourself. You're also harming your relationship with your creator who created you in his image. But if you're married and looking at pornography, you're harming your relationship with your spouse, whether they're aware of it or not. You are bringing into your marriage something that is corrupting that bond, and therefore, you're harming your spouse. And in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. It's adultery of the heart. Now listen, if you're struggling with the sin of pornography, there is only one way out of it. 
It's grace. You need forgiving grace and you need transforming grace. How do you get those two things, forgiving grace and transforming grace? It only comes to you through repentance. That's how it comes. You need repentance. I wanted to read you another uh, quote because I've talked to men before that had this idea. A lot of times, particularly Christian men, men just um, sort of have a low view of themselves. They're focused on, I can't believe I did this again, that kind of a thing. Listen to what he says here. Meditating on how miserable and pathetic you are only perpetuates the sinful self-centeredness that led you to look at pornography in the first place. Condemning self-talk still has you standing center stage as you reflect on what you think about what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because of what you did, it's all about you. The problem is there's too much of you in all this. You need Christ. And the only way to break the vicious cycle is to get outside of yourself and get to Jesus. You need to stop talking to yourself in categories of condemnation and begin talking to God in categories of confession. Repentance. These two things I've addressed briefly, premarital sex and pornography, are great, great dangers. God says he will judge the sexually immoral. But he also mentions here specifically adultery, doesn't it? Adulterers God will judge. Adultery is any sexual act between a man and woman when one or both of them are married to another. And again, adulterous relationships, those are romanticized in movies. Often the, per, the perpetrators are pictured as, as individuals who, who never really experience love. <laughs> when in actuality, they're, they're committing adultery because they themselves are unwilling to love their spouse. We were given a great definition of love last night, weren't we, folks, at the marriage conference? Paul David Tripp called it cruciform loved. Cruci, the cross, form in the shape of. It's love that is in the shape of the cross. And here is what it was. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. It's willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Adulterous affairs have nothing to do with love. They happen because men and women believe the lie that there is something better for them outside of what God has already provided for them in their spouse. Proverbs 9, 17 to 18 says this, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that their guests are in the depths of hell. Adultery is spoken of here. This is the adulteress. It seems sweet. It seems pleasant. But what's really there is death. And adultery, listen, is not the, the greatest sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. But however, think about this with me. Adultery does such great damage to the marriage covenant. It's the one sin a partner could commit against another that can break the bond. It's probably why it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the one sin. You think about all the ways a husband and wife can sin against one another in any given day, any given week, any given month. Think about all the ways and all those actions. None of those things can break the marriage bond. There's grace and forgiveness through all those things, but adultery breaks the bond. So much so, Jesus allows for divorce. It's the only stipulation for that. Why is it so damaging? Because it forsakes the marriage covenant. 
I've heard things like, I, I, I've never signed up for this in my marriage. I, um, I'm not getting anything out of this relationship. I'm not, I'm not getting the love I deserve. I deserve to be happy. And I can find a greater love somewhere else. Many people think these things, right? But they're wrong. And some people who think these things might not go so far as to commit adultery, but they will leave their partner over those things. They'll get divorced over those things. And I just want to remind you that anyone who divorces one's spouse for any reason other than sexual immorality and then remarries someone else is now an adulterer because God does not recognize the divorce. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, Now to the married I command you, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. See, adultery forsakes the marriage covenant. It breaks the bonds. It also fractures that one flesh bond. In 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 16, says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. As believers, married or single, we're one spirit with Christ. We've got to protect that union from defilement. As married, we're one flesh with our spouse. This is an incredible thing. And a man or woman who commits adultery defiles that one flesh union, which God intended to be permanent. God's heart for marriage can be seen so clearly in Malachi 2. The priests were divorcing their aging wives to marry younger ones. That's what was happening here. And God said to them, I can no longer even you know, respect your offerings. I can't regard them. And in Malachi 2, verse 14, he says, But you say, what, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The companionship that God gives us, the oneness in the covenant, it's a precious thing. Men and women who are are flippant about their uh, companion or the covenant, they're dealing treacherously with their spouse. God hates it. Again, adultery is not the unforgivable sin here. Although it's the one sin which can break the bond of marriage, it's also possible for an adulterer to find forgiving grace, to find transforming grace through repentance. And in relation to these things that defile the marriage bed, fornication and adultery, God will judge, he says. I just want to end with a couple of verses here. Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. But fornication... And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. It shouldn't even be among the name of the saints. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, he says such a simple verse here, it just is shocking. He says it's not, it shouldn't be named among you as Christians because you already know something. You already know that a fornicator... An unclean person has no place in the kingdom of God. As a saint, that shouldn't even be among you because you know 
people who practice these things don't end up in the kingdom. Do you see that? And so it shouldn't even be named there. For the believer, the one who professes professes faith in Christ, who chooses to remain a, a fornicator or an adulterer, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God isn't evident in their lives. That's why. These things are works of the flesh, not the spirit. David read that this, this morning. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. That's how he starts it. That's the kingdom of self. But the kingdom of God is evident when the fruit of the spirit is evident, which is in Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I am out of time, and I last minute added some points I wanted to make to our, our younger people and won't have time to do that t- today. Because some are perhaps thinking, you know, okay, I, I want to be married. I haven't been able to find a spouse. You know, I struggle with this. What, what should I do? I just want to briefly say, you should probably look to get married. But you don't go and jump and grab the first person that you see, right? That's not what we do. But, but, but here, here's the thing. We, um, I think we approach these things in the wrong way sometimes. Our desire as a church, hey, we want to find our own building. So we'll just wait here and we'll wait for God to do something. No, we went out and became a CIO. It took a year of processing, a year of paperwork, a year with solicitors, right? We had to form a search committee, start doing searches. We had to do things to prepare ourselves. A farmer plants, uh, it prepares the ground for God to do something, to, to provide a crop. And my point is this, if you are at that point, like I, you don't want to get to the place where you fall into sexual immorality. If the struggle is so great, you should get married. And if you're like, well, I, you know, I've, I've been here, there's just no guys, I haven't seen, you probably should put yourself in places where you run into Christian men a little more often. I, you, should, you should do that. I don't say this becomes the focus of your life, and now I'm going to go find, uh, 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 find me a man, right? <laughs> but, but go to some of the Christian camps that we go to or go to one yourself. Put yourself in places where you meet these people. But in the meantime, in the meantime, you should begin preparing yourself, preparing yourself for that person. If I'm talking to men, I'm just going to rattle these really quick because I am out of time. Sorry about this. But men, you should be getting, preparing yourself right now don't, don't focus on meeting Mr. and Mrs. Right. Instead, focus on being right, okay? If you're a man, you need to be prepared to lead in love. And so you have to start practicing that now. You need to know what love is, and you have to begin to prepare yourself to love. Begin by loving your church. Two, you need to begin by leading in the word. Do you know the word? Because if you want to be married, you need to be the one that teaches your wife and leads in that way. You need to lead in the word. And that's where going to require some time in the word, a plan for growth, patient instruction in the word, be focusing on those things. You need to lead in righteousness. And so that is guarding yourself. That's a a personal commitment to holiness. You've got to make that a priority. And you need to be leading in selflessness. We lead as servants. If you're a woman and you're struggling with this and you're looking to be married, I would focus on these things. Attitude, it's willing obedience to God. Submission to him, We're going to sit, you're going to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Practice with your Lord. Willing obedience to God. Humility. Industriousness, which is, you know, it's not what we do for a living, but it's, it's what we do with our living, isn't it? And contentment. Being content. I just want to end with a passage here. 
in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you be able, be able to, to bear it. I don't want to freak you out about sexual morality, but I do say you need to abstain. The pressure of the world says it's no big deal. It's a huge, huge deal. And so practice service, practice physical activity. God has provided a way of escape. I know these are huge issues, and myself and the church leadership are dedicated to helping men and women who struggle with these things. Perhaps it's pornography. Um, perhaps it's different things. But we purchased this week another video series and audio series by Paul David Tripp called Sex and Money. And so it's based on the two things we're going to be talking about. Next time we meet, we'll talk about money. Um, it's a 10-episode 10, 10 video series, but also it's on an audio series. Those are the only two ways we have it now. But we purchased it to make it available to everyone in the church. I've sent it to all of the elders, so they all have the link. Now listen, don't feel like, oh, if I go ask them for the link, <laughs> then they're... Everyone should watch the videos on sex and money. It's not about pornography. It's, not, it's about what is God's design for sex? Why is it such a big issue in our world? What, how does God want us to handle our money? Everyone. So no one here is going to think, oh, because you asked for this, you got to struggle. Everyone should ask for it. If I have no one asking for me, I'm going to come knocking on doors. All right, so I have the link. All the elders have the links. You can get those audio if you just want to drive and listen to it, or you can have the video series. Also, I wanted to mention this book again. It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. It's the only one I've found that doesn't go into descriptions about pornography and the money and the nonsense. It's all about grace, which is the only way out. Another one that focuses on the sin within that you have to overcome is The Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard. So just to give some resources, I know these are massive issues, and it's so important that we speak into them. It's why I took extra long today to talk about it. Thank you for your patience. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that you do give us instruction on such important things like, like sex, Lord, that we, we become bombarded by the messages of the world that just says, just, just do it. Do it anywhere. Do it with anyone. It's, um, Lord, not according to your design. It doesn't bring about blessing in our lives. And Lord, I, I don't know where everyone is in their, in their relationships here today. Perhaps some are sitting here squirming because they're, they're currently in a relationship like that. Lord, I, I am just reminded today, as even I, I, you recalled in the middle of this, a, a young couple who sat under a similar teaching years ago came up to me right after the service and said, you know what, we've been living together, we're not married, what should we do? And I said, well, you should probably get married. They showed up the next day with a marriage certificate, saying, we just want to be obedient to the Lord. I just pray that you would be willing to do whatever it takes to be obedient to the Lord. There are new mercies every morning. God knows where you are right now. You can receive forgiveness and grace right now. It comes about by repentance. I will no longer walk in this life. I will turn from it. I will follow you. I see your good design in this, and I want to live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.